Well, good morning again, church family. One of my biggest uh, historical heroes is the English preacher Charles Haddon Spurgeon. I named my son after him, and he's got a great life, wonderful pastor. And as a, as a child, he was raised in a very devout, faithful Christian home. And yet, he didn't come to faith as a, as a young child. He recalled that he knew he was a sinner, and he was lost, and he was separated from Christ. And for seven years, he actively resisted coming to belief in Jesus. Right? He had all the Christian books at his disposal. He'd come to his grandfather's house, and he'd have every work of all the Puritans, all the Christian theology right there in the bookshelf. And Charles would even read them, and yet he still would not believe. He had a faithful mom who Charles would walk by in the middle of the night, and his mom would be on her knees praying that Charles would be saved, and yet he was not. And after you read his story and his biography and you think about his childhood, you think if he couldn't be saved in that spiritual home, this guy's never going to get saved. But on January 6th, 1850, Charles found himself in a snowstorm on a Sunday. And though he was not a Christian, he still was attending a church, and it was snowing so bad in England, in London, that he was unable to get to his normal Sunday church. So he kind of took a random turn down an alley, and he found a small church called the Primitive Methodist Church. And there were no more than 15 people there, and it's cold, it's snowy, it's in London, and they're all sitting there in the pews waiting for the preacher to arrive, and he never shows up. So the guy, one of the longtime members there, who's an uneducated, untrained pastor, he's a shoemaker by trade, he stands up, never preached a sermon in his life before, he stands up, he grabs the Bible, and he reads one verse from Isaiah chapter 45. And here's what Spurgeon said, what happened. The shoemaker was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was this, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth. The shoemaker did not even pronounce the words rightly, but it did not matter. There was I, I thought, a glimmer of hope for me in that text of scripture. An untrained, an uneducated, unprepared man stood up to preach a passage of Scripture. He didn't know what to do beyond reading the passage and briefly preaching about it. And guess what happened? Spurgeon was saved that morning. He was converted because a man clearly and simply presented the Bible to him. Again, Spurgeon lived in a household full of theological works. Went to church every single day of his life, and yet it was a poor shoemaker reading the Bible that triggered his salvation. The Bible was sufficient for salvation. Today we're going to be looking at three little stories about the church planter, the pastor, the missionary Paul in Acts chapter 17. Paul came into three cities Cities that were strange to him, and he desired to teach them about Jesus. And all three cities had different people, they had different culture, and yet Paul taught the same thing for all three cities. He brought the word of God. That's all that he packed with him. It was sufficient. 
And Paul is going to teach us today from Acts 17 that if we lean into, that if we rely upon the Word of God, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. So please open up to Acts 17 if you've not already. If you need a Bible, uh, there's one in front of you or below you. It's on page 926 in those Black Pew Bibles. We are going to spend several minutes here reading the entire chapter of Acts 17. Three scenes, verses 1 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did many a great of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. When they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men, who have turned the world upside down, have come here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they had arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others says, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as a known, I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is not actually far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went from their midst, but some men joined him and believed. Among them were Dionys the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. That is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, Show us wonderful things from your word this morning. Spirit, help us to be more like Christ. Amen. Paul went to Thessalonica. He then went to Berea. He then went to Athens. And in Thessalonica, the people of the town mostly responded with opposition and aggression. So he moves on to Berea. And it seems there that they received Paul and Scripture. They were positive and more noble. He then gets to Athens, and they were curious, and they asked questions. Three different environments, three different responses, and yet Paul came to each city with everything he needed, the Word of God. Over and over again we see, it says, Paul reasoned with them from the Scriptures. Paul preached the word. He preached Jesus. And guess what happens when Paul preaches the word of God? People respond in faith. Yes, there are those who responded in rejection, but no matter what the response is, Paul found the word of God sufficient for his life and his ministry. And I pray we follow in his example. This is the main point for us today. Be comforted and confident, Christian. For you have the word of God, and it's the very thing you need for your life. So you as a Christian should be comforted and confident, for you have the word of God, and it's the very thing you need for your life. And to say that, to say that the word of God is the very thing you need for your life, is a way to say that the Bible is sufficient. The sufficiency of the Bible is a doctrinal, it's a theological term that means the Bible provides everything you need to be saved and to live a life fully pleasing to God. So we can be equipped, as 2 Timothy 3.17 says, we can be equipped, fully equipped by Scripture. 
2 Peter 1.3 says, God has given us everything we need for life and godliness through the giving of his knowledge of himself. Where is the biggest knowledge of himself? In Scripture. So you, as an individual, can work at your job in a way that's fully pleasing to God because you have Scripture. You can raise your kids in a way that pleases God because you have scripture to guide you. You have wisdom and understanding when life gets confusing because you have scripture. You can know who God is and what he's like and what he has done because of scripture. The sufficiency of the Bible means that you can live for God in this world every day and he will guide you. I mean, look at Paul in our story. In the first town, Thessalonica, Paul arrives. And it says in verse 2 that he was there, as his custom, in the Jewish synagogue on three Sabbath days. That means three weeks. There's one Sabbath day a week. And that means for three weeks, he reasoned with them, as it says, from the Scriptures. Explain and preach and teach Many Greeks and Gentiles were persuaded and became believers. But then there was this aggressive population of Jews. And they were, they were jealous because this man was coming in, this former Jew was coming in and taking away the attention from their religion. Because Jesus would make most of the Jewish religion completely void. And they would look like they'd lose influence and they are much weaker. So they stir up this crowd, a mob. They put the city in an uproar. And they bring in the local government to try to tame these Christians. So Paul moves 40 miles away to Berea. And what does he do there? He teaches the word of God again. And it says, these Jews, unlike the Jews in the city before, received the word with eagerness. Isn't that a good phrase? They studied it. They examined it with Paul. And many of the Jews here believed. So this town in Berea, says, was more noble. They were kinder. And yet it doesn't have a very good ending, does it? The Jews from the town before heard it was going good. So they came over there and did the mob and riot thing again. So Paul then ships off to Athens, which is the leading cultural and political city of the empire. And what does he do there? Verse 17. He reasoned with the Jews in the synagogue. The very same thing he did in Thessalonica and in Berea. He reasoned with people from Scripture. He taught, he preached, he shared the word of God. Now, we're mostly going to be looking at the account, the scene here in Athens in a second. But don't lose sight of the simple, three-time repeated truth that Paul comes into a town not knowing anyone, not knowing the reaction, and yet he brings the very same thing the word of God, and that was sufficient for his life. And not only was it sufficient for him, but it was sufficient for all of the people in the town who were going to believe. The word of God is sufficient for all people in all places and in all situations. Now, if you've traveled to another part of the country, far from maybe the Midwest, or maybe if you've even traveled to another country, you might sometimes face somewhat of culture shock. Right? People talk differently. Right? If you go visit maybe downtown Chicago for the first time and you get on the expressway, you're going to learn that the way that you merge is you merge going 80 miles an hour at the last second. Maybe shocking to you if you're used to merging at the roundabout in downtown Chippewa. 
Right? There's vocabulary changes. In the South, they say Coke. In the North, they say pop. If you go internationally, obviously, you probably won't understand the language. You may have to drive on the other side of the road. But despite all of the differences and the culture shock, there are certain things that any person anywhere can still understand. For example, there is a universal sign for saying hello. It's a wave. There's a universal symbol for dollar cheeseburgers. McDonald's. And whether you are in Chippewa Falls or you are in Australia, righty, tidy, lefty, loosey still works. There are things that work for all people in all places, even if everything else is different. Paul shows us that no matter where he is or the attitude of the crowd or the location of the city, the word of God works and you can bank on it. It is reliable. It accomplishes God's will. So we're going to really zoom in here on the last scene in this passage in Athens, how Paul stands firmly on the word of God to minister to the people in Athens. And he shows us three things that the word of God does. Three evidences that the Bible is sufficient for us. And with each point, I'm going to apply it to you, Christian, in two ways. For you to be a better Bible student, number one. He teaches us how to read our Bible. And second of all, for how you share your faith. Because Paul does a really good job with that here. The first thing, here's what the Word of God does. It points out sin and idolatry. It points out sin and idolatry. Verse 16 reads, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him, as he saw that the city was full of idols. Athens is the famous city in the Greek empire that housed the Parthenon, a beautiful and artistic building that housed a 40-foot statue to the Greek goddess Athena. And throughout Athens, there were statues and pieces of art that depicted Greek gods and goddesses and and carvings on buildings that taught the stories and the wars of Greek mythology. This is the town that Paul arrives at, and as he gets there, he walks around, and he sees the people, he sees the arts, and it says his spirit within him, his demeanor, his attitude was provoked. He was disappointed and saddened. He was mourning that this city revolved around the worship and recognition of false gods made by human hands. So because he was grieved by the idolatry and the sin of this city, what did he do? It says in verse 18, he reasoned from the scriptures and preached Jesus and the resurrection. Paul knew scripture well enough that he could walk around this city and realize how far from God this city was. Paul's knowledge of scripture and God pointed out to him the idolatry of Athens. And he preached Jesus to the point where people kept inviting him to speak again. And it says that there's enough curiosity in what Paul was preaching and teaching that the leading philosophers of the day brought him to them. In verse 22, it says, He stood in the midst of the Areopagus. This is a literal physical hill in Athens. 
It's where all the religious and governmental and philosophical meetings would happen, and they would discuss new ideas. And as Paul is teaching these leading intellectual elites, he can see clearly above them the false gods surrounding the city. He can see the Parthenon that's bowing down in worship to Athena. He is surrounded by statues made of stone and bronze, and he's looking at this dead spiritual city, and he brings the word of God to the people. And the first words of his sermon, of his, of his speech, are this. Men of Athens, I perceive in every way you are very religious, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. There were literally statues to gods throughout the city, and even a statue that says to the unknown God to cover all the bases of the gods they don't know exist. I mean, these idols, these gods were immovable. They were made by a human. They could not smile or speak. They could not move an inch. They could not feel an emotion. They literally sat there. And this city worshipped them. And they worshipped the wrong God. Yet it does show us something about humans. That all humans are seeking something. All humans, as Romans 1 tells us, are aware that there is something bigger and greater outside of ourselves. We are without excuse. The problem in Athens was they were seeking the wrong religion, the wrong God. They bowed down to statues. So Paul came in here teaching the word of God. And what happens when the word of God is preached to sinners? Which, by the way, is all of us. It makes us uncomfortable. Paul preaches the scriptures. And what do people say about him in verse 18? Oh, he's a babbler. He's preaching foreign religion, foreign divinities. Verse 20 says people thought it was strange. And in verse 22, people mocked Paul for what he was teaching. One of the things the Word of God does when it is preached is it reveals our hold and our grip on our idols. Paul walked into a town full of statue idols, and he preached that they were false gods, and guess what that does? It draws a line in the sand very quickly. You either get on board with Paul or you disagree with Paul. There is no middle ground with the Word of God. Provokes our idols. So Christian, your first application here is about your Bible reading. When you read the Bible, you need to allow the Spirit to convict you. To make you feel uncomfortable. To see what idols you have competing with God. <coughs> so when is the last time you're reading through your Bible... And you were provoked by your own idolatry. Where you walked away saying, oh, I sinned. I love something more than God. Because if the Bible doesn't make us uncomfortable, then are we actually reading the Bible properly? Because the Bible is going to point out our sin. So one of the questions you should ask when you read your Bible is this. God, how does this passage lead me to confessing my sin to you? Because if we were with Paul in this scene in Athens, 
Paul could take us on a tour of Athens. He could point out the Parthenon and Athena. He could point out this statue to Zeus. He could show so it's all the idolatry in the statues. Well, when we read the Bible, one of the things the Bible does, because it's pure and it's perfect, is it takes us on a tour of our own sin and idolatry. So we read the Bible, all of a sudden we say, oh, there's my greed. Oh, there's my, there's my gossip and my pride. There's where I'm ignoring God. Here's my anger, my lack of love for my neighbor. Here's my short fuse. Here's my porn addiction. Here's my love of money. And the Bible, because what? It's pure and it's holy and it's perfect. It says, here's our sin and here's where we fall short of God's character. Because Hebrews 4.12 says, what? The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and spirit of joints and of morrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible, if heard and received honestly, will make us uncomfortable. It will offend us. It will humble us. So Christian, receive the word with meekness. Let nothing be off the table for God to change. But secondly, thinking about how the Bible shows us our idols, this is going to only help us be better evangelists. Are we, like Paul here, so in tune with God's Word that when we walk around our, our work or our neighborhood or our city, that we are grieved by the sin of our city or our work? The more we are in the word, the more clearly sin is appear, apparent to us. The more we see idolatry in our world and our own lives. The Bible is going to point it out. The more Paul preached, the more apparent sin and idolatry became. So Paul communi communicated to those in Athens, right, that they were seeking out false, made-up, man-made gods. And guess what? Our world has not changed. Our loved ones are seeking out things other than God for satisfaction. They're trapped in their sins. And it's only bringing them the word of God and the reality of their sin and pursuit that they can then find refuge and salvation. So know that behind their drinking or their addiction to work or their desire for money, that they are seeking something. They're looking for satisfaction. They're looking for meaning. And guess what's going to happen? Always come up short. That no matter what they plug into to distract themselves from what's going on in their soul, they are resisting God. And that's where you come in, like Paul. You come in and show them and lead them to the remedy, because we need as humans to see our sin and our idolatry, because only those who see our sin and idolatry can actually be set free from it. And the Bible is sufficient to reveal our sin and our world's sin. And only if we see our sin can we have a right view of God. This leads us to the second point. What the Word of God does is it reveals God to us. Reveals God to us. So Paul is walking through Athens and he points out all the idolatry. And then what does he do? He shows how much bigger and more beautiful and more holy and more alive God is than these idols. Look at verse 24. 
The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The most important thing we could ever know about is God. There is nothing more crucial to our life, nothing more consequential to our existence than knowing who God is. So Paul, after pointing out the sculpted gods of the day, then shows the people of God, shows the people that God is over the false gods, right? The God over all of creation. Here, what he's doing is he's preaching and summarizing the entire creation account in Genesis and almost the entire Old Testament where we see God ruling over nations and people. Paul describes God as the one who made the world and everything in it. Those false gods, how were they made? By human hands using elements of the earth that God already created. Not only that, but it says God does not live in temples or houses. He doesn't need anything. God is self-sufficient. He's eternal. He's above us. Whereas these false gods and idols in Athens, they're immovable. They can't even move themselves. At times, they would bring them into shelter if a bad storm was coming so they wouldn't break. They can be damaged. Rock can fall apart. Can God fall apart? Is God ever in need of repair? God created all humans and all lands and all nations, and he's allotted time. He's allotted history. He's sovereign over everything that happens. And yet these false gods have no power, no strength, no mind. They do not rule or reign. They sit there in their stone faces and don't move. And this creator God is not far from us. He's not distant, he's not mute, nor does he ignore. He is the creator of all things. And guess what? He's a personal God. These sculpted idols can't relate to you. They can't speak to you. They can't love you. They can't be present with you. And yet the eternal creator God is relatable. He is your God and he loves you and he can respond and he feels So Paul was presenting the word of God to these people to show them that God is real and God is far more glorious and beautiful and holy than we could ever dream. The Bible reveals God. In the Bible, we read of his character, his attributes, things like his power and his purity, his eternality. We read of his divine actions, the things that he has done of creation or providence, his caring governance over all things. When Paul is teaching the word of God here, he's revealing who God is to people. And as for many in the audience, this causes them to see how weak and foolish and how ugly and unsatisfying their sin and idols are. That they could then compare the eternal, powerful, pure, living, feeling, ruling, loving God to a 40-foot statue that's sitting in a building. The word of God is the revelation of God. When you read the Bible, 
you are reading about God, his own self-disclosing of who he is and what he's done. And who God is and what he's done is vitally important to us. He is the center of all existence. He not only made us to exist, but he's also the reason for why you exist and breathe and move. Look at verse 27. What is the purpose of mankind? It says that they should seek God. Knowing God is our purpose. And the Bible, the Word of God, discloses who He is to us. We can know Him. So Christian, again, two quick applications. First of all, with your Bible reading, when you are reading the Bible... Do not forget that you are reading God's own revelation of himself to you. He's communicating you to you who he is and what he's like. It's not just this inspirational book. It's the revelation of God. You were created by this God, and this God is sustaining every air molecule around your head right now. He's ordering the steps you are taking today, and he's doing a million other things at the exact same time around you for his glory. So who this God is, is vitally important to you. So when you read the Bible, ask this question. What does this passage teach me about God? That's what the Bible is about. What about his character or his heart or his actions? Because the God of the Bible that we read about, whether it's Genesis or Exodus or it's Matthew, or it's Acts. The God of the Bible is the God of now. He does not change. So you are reading who God is today when you read the history of the Bible. But the second application is about your evangelism. As you read the Bible yourself, you're going to be motivated to share your faith. And your goal in evangelism is to help other people know who God is. As we saw earlier, God is way more beautiful, he's truer, he's more joyful option than all of the idols and sin in this world. He's the only way to salvation. And the more that you read the Bible yourself, the more you can communicate the beauty and glory of God. Because when we evangelize, if you have maybe someone in your mind right now, a neighbor, a friend, a family member who does not know Jesus, when we evangelize to that person, we are not, as Christians, trying to convert them to morality or to an organization, or to a set of rules of conduct. No, when we evangelize and share our faith, what are we trying to do? Bring them to God. Christianity is not about rules or joining a club. It's about knowing God personally. So let us not evangelize weakly and poorly. We often try to tell people, hey, come be a Christian because we have good morals. Come be a Christian and bring your kids because it's a safe place for them. Come be a Christian because we love each other. And maybe all three of those things are true, but that's not why you become a Christian. You become a Christian because you get God. God himself is convincing enough. Show them God when you evangelize. 
If you try to hide God because he's scary or you hide God because he has this thing called wrath or you're hiding God because you're trying to avoid hell or because maybe he hates these types of people. We have all these theories of why we're trying to hide God. No, present to them God of the Bible. That saved you, didn't it? So as you see your lost friends and your family members trying to find happiness in lesser things, know that you have God and he's more satisfying and more And he's happier than all the other things in this world combined, so bring them to that God. Because their pursuits of idols and sin will continue to be empty. And yet you have the creator, the all-satisfying king at your disposal. Present that to them. And this might seem crazy to us, but very practically, if you have someone in your life who's not a believer... What if you ask them to read the Bible with you? Take a couple stories from the Gospel of Mark and read it and see what happens. The Bible is the self-revelation of God. I'm pretty sure God's pretty good at talking about himself. It is sufficient to display the goodness of God. So the Word of God points out our idolatry. It reveals God to us. But third and finally, what does the Word of God do? It delivers Jesus to us. The Bible delivers Jesus to us. The Holy Spirit uses the Word of God to save us. The work of Jesus is communicated to us through the Word of God. Paul writes in Romans 10, 17, that faith comes by hearing and hearing the Word of God. And look at how Paul ends his teaching here in verse 31 in Acts 17. He says this, Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, and by a man, and that man is Jesus, whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all things by raising him, Jesus, from the dead. Earlier in verse 18, it mentioned Paul was preaching Jesus in the resurrection. Now in the same audience, Paul declares the word that Jesus is going to come back again to judge the world. He's going to come back and judge the entire world, and he has the authority to do so. Why? Because he is the only one who resurrected from the dead, conquering sin and evil. And because Jesus came and lived righteously, a perfect life, and because he was crucified for our sins, and because he did not deserve it, and yet he resurrected, conquering it all, he's proving himself to be the eternal God who can wipe away evil forever. He's now the king who's going to come back and judge the entire world, bring people into eternity who have repented and turned away from their sins. And that is the gospel, and that is what the entire Bible centers on. So all of Scripture is about Jesus. The Old Testament is preparing and predicting and And foreshadowing Jesus, the gospel, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, are the historical accounts of Jesus. The rest of the New Testament are about how we live for Jesus after he's gone. The Bible's about Jesus. So when Paul comes in and he preaches, no matter where he's at, he always lands on Jesus. Because Jesus alone can save, and that is the point. So what happens every time in these three scenes when when Paul lands on Jesus? Well, in verse 4, in verse 12, in verse 33, it shows that through the preaching of the word that Jesus 
was delivered into the hearts of sinners. By the word, people were saved. The word of God is the story of God redeeming sinners through Jesus, and that is sufficient to save us. The word is what the Spirit uses to deliver salvation to us. So Christian, application. When you read the Bible, still find refuge and comfort in Jesus. Yes, you've already been saved. Yes, he's been crucified for, crucified you. Yes, your sin does not hold a leash on you anymore. Jesus died for you, and because he loves you, now you don't have to doubt that. When you read the Bible, you're going to come across promises, and you're going to come across truths. And guess what? You get to claim them for you because Jesus truly resurrected for you. So when you feel like God does not love you, your first thing is not to wallow in depression and bitterness. It's to run to the Bible and read the eternal truth of God that God loves you and he sent his son for you. When you read the Bible, you are reading about treasure that's already yours in Christ. So yes, you might read the Bible and it might convict you of sin, and yet at the same time, it's going to be the medicine and the remedy saying, it's already finished, you are forgiven, child. As you read the Bible, Christian, be comforted by Jesus. His grace is all on every page. And in the end, no matter what's going on in your life, if you have the Bible, you can know everything's going to be okay in the end because you are wrapped up in his love and his embrace. But also, Christian, as you evangelize, bring the grace and the love and the tenderness to your lost friend. We are in a world surrounded by pride and ugliness. And we should present God and his truth. We are bringing God to people, but also bring the sweet medicine of Jesus and grace to the lost. So your neighbor who's an alcoholic needs to hear about the grace of Jesus. Your family member who is bitter and angry at organized religion needs to hear about the gentleness of Christ. Your coworker who's seeking her identity in her work needs to hear about the rest found in Christ. As Christians, we are called to share about Jesus. And how he has treated us and our sin is what we should be telling other people. No matter what they're like, no matter what they've done, he forgives, he loves, he cares for them. This might sound crazy, but as you evangelize, don't forget about Jesus. Don't preach the religion. Don't preach, come to my church. Do, do, yes, bring them here. But we're not saving them into a club. We're saving them into Jesus. So when you bring the word of God to people, you're bringing to them Jesus because the word of God finds its fulfillment in Christ. So if you have the Bible in your mind, in your heart, you are never unequipped to share Jesus. So you should be comforted and confident that no matter where you go, if you have the word of God, you can bring Jesus to somebody. So CVBC, you have all that you need to grow in your faith, and you have all that you need to bring faith to other people. Because you have the word 
of God. And God loves to use the word of God to do mighty things. There was a verse from Isaiah 45 that saved Spurgeon. It was three weeks of Paul preaching scripture in Thessalonica to save sinners there. CBBC, if we continue to hear and read and listen and share the word of God, I know God is going to do mighty, eternal things, and we have all we need in his word and in him. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, that in it we can find faith, that we can be sanctified, that we can know your character. Lord, I pray that within this room right now, that you give us all such a deep motivation and an unction to study your word, to know more about you. Would it be a desire that we can't get rid of, that we will know more and more of our heavenly Father? And that we will go from this place energetic and motivated and equipped to share the gospel with those who desperately need it. Lord, do that in our body right now. Thank you for saving us. In Jesus' name, amen.